can be lonely at the top. We all know what it's like to lead and own a business and wanting to scale, but finding yourself at a glass ceiling. That is where the power of collaboration and connection comes in. Hi, I'm Natasha Milani. I'm an expert at helping businesses and business owners harness the power of collaboration to connect, scale and grow. I am passionate about collaboration. I believe that no one executes alone. We all do better when we do it together. Welcome to this Power of Collaboration podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. I hope you get the inspiration and information you need to harness the power of collaboration to break through your glass ceilings. Today, I'm talking to Richard Turner. Richard is the founder of Zen Energy and he's also written a new book, The Essential Entrepreneur. Welcome, Richard. Yeah, hi, Natasha. How are you? Great, thank you. Richard, there's so much content to get through today. I'm I'm almost feeling a bit overwhelmed about where we're going to start, but I'm going to start by just allowing you to introduce yourself. Firstly, it's great to be here. Wow. Uh, background on me, so 40 years, four businesses, including organisations like founding the Entrepreneurs' Organisation, but I grew up in a business family. My father had a wholesale meat business in South Australia called Holbrook Meats when I was at school. So uh, I used to spend my school holidays washing walls and cleaning drains and doing all the great jobs and learning how to get on with all the different cultures and people and understanding the value of money and you know saving up for hi-fi systems and vinyl records back then. But great experience. And then I was the youngest of three boys, first to have the experience or opportunity to go to university probably one of the first cohorts to learn computer coding in my business degree. Came out of that, the company had grown to a sizable business. It had just invested in a big, pretty much a mainframe Hewlett-Packard computer system back then. So the family wanted me to come in, take control of that and start automating systems within the business. So first thing I was engaged to do was look at their livestock training platform, which was the biggest process in that business. We had cattle buyers all over the country buying tens of thousands of head head of cattle. So we had to track weights and yields and where those cattle came from and and, um, prices in the market, all sorts of different things. So I started process or building this, what ended up being the livestock trading system for Holbrooks. Now, when Holbrooks went public in 1986, uh, the export division was TNR Pastoral. When Dad eventually retired, he sold his share of that to one of our cattle buyers, Chris Thomas. Uh, the other person who owned the other half of it was Bob Rowe, and it became TNR Pastoral. And then when Bob Rowe passed away a few years ago, the Thomas family bought the Rose out, and that family business is now Thomas Foods. So it was a great business to grow up in. But that livestock trading platform, I guess, really changed the way that industry operated, and it was my first experience at actually disrupting and changing the way an industry worked. And I thought, well, that was pretty cool at the time. And um, then from there on, my brothers and I, Greg and Paul and myself, set up a company called Regency Food Services, which did a number of industry-changing innovations. I won't go into all of those because that will take too long, but built a great company that we were targeted by Bidvest, which was a big South African food service business that went to the UK, rationalised the UK market, bought the biggest distributors in the UK, had a model for doing that, came to Australia, found our company. We'd just won the Australian Food Service Distributor of the Year twice in a row and um, said, basically came to us and said, well, we want, we want to buy your business. This is the model we want for Australia because we've done all these unique things. 
So we said no about four or five times during the year and eventually they made us a silly offer and we thought, well, that's, that's good enough. <laughs> so we'll go and do something different for a while. Um, and we sold that in 1999. So that became Bidvest, uh, which is now Bid Food, another multi-billion dollar business. So that was the second big business the company the, the family had founded. And uh, I'm very proud to say the young girl I employed as my receptionist when she was 20 is now the CEO of that multi-billion dollar business, Great which story. is a big lesson mm-hmm. in, in recruiting people, recruiting people that you, you know, have the aspiration or the ability to train to you know, various levels of your, your business. I founded the entrepreneurs organisation in, well, young entrepreneurs organisation it was at the time because we were a lot younger then. You had to be under 40 and it was a global organisation, but I won the South Australian Entrepreneur of the Year in 96 and uh, I was the right age and the right sort of person they were looking for to get the YEO chapter founded in South Australia and they approached me a few times and eventually I said, yes, let's do it and rounded up the first founding five members of, of YEO and, um, and that organisation, we had a great time, great learning experience, great collaboration experience, which is part of the topic today. That eventually became the entrepreneurs organisation globally when everyone started reaching 40 and decided they were having too good a time, so they changed the name globally. Um, and then the last company I founded was in 2004, which was Zen Energy, um, which has been on a a remarkable journey, a different journey, because with Regency Foods, our family came from the food industry, so my brothers and I had the skills to go on that journey. Zen Energy was a different journey. Solar and batteries, uh, I understood. I enjoyed maths and physics at school. I, I enjoyed the electrical side of that and putting those systems and kits together that really started my kid's cubby house. But that business transitioned and transformed over time to become a large scale, as it is now, generator and retailer of electricity. In fact, it's now, for a business that started in the Kids Cubby House, is now the second largest retailer to AGL in the country. So it's been a massive journey, but a journey that I didn't have the skills for, for that whole journey. You know, when it got to managing and understanding and working with the, um, the energy markets, which is a really complex field, you know, I had to bring specialists into the company. So um, we had uh, a large-scale, grid-scale battery technology was a, a key ingredient in that mix. And when Raymond Spencer invested in the company, he had ownership in a company in the US that was developing the world's first battery management systems for large-scale batteries to go on the grid. And then Roscano came into the company in 2015, Professor Roscano. He had the influence and the direction and the understanding of the energy markets and had the skills to, with his family and others, take us on the journey to transform and become what the company is now. So long-winded introduction, (laughs) sorry about that. There's been a lot lot there. Richard, I mean, I love the fact that you grew up in a family business and I think that obviously provided a platform for you to do some great things in life uh, right through to founding Zen in your kid's cubby house. Mm -hmm. And even you talked about in Zen... Collaboration. I mean, you gave some great examples of that you can't execute alone. You brought in expertise, you brought in support. That takes some vulnerability as well in that context. Just share a little bit about when you founded Zen, um, what it was going to take for you to get the business to the next level. Been a very interesting journey with Zen. So to give us the market advantage in the early days, yes, we had to collaborate largely with suppliers because it, it was an industry that didn't exist. So back in 2004, we really were the first commercial solar company. There was us and another company called Solar Shop that's no longer around, but we were the first 
to really go out and establish a brand and also a market position. Like when you start a new industry or you change an industry or innovate, you need to give it a new name. And um, and that's a great way to separate yourself out from the masses and using tools like PR, become the leader of that particular field. But in the early days, we had to collaborate with suppliers to actually produce the first home energy systems. And uh, we worked with a company out of Germany called SMA that had just come out of the railway industry and had and, and built big inverters for the railway yards. And they had just started building small inverters for the solar, or for, for homes. And another company I found in China, which was ET Solar, just had a one handmade line making solar panels. So I found these companies at their very earliest stages and got to know the the owners or the senior CEOs and it was funny we actually turned up to this Chinese company with our three month old baby and a Caucasian baby in China everyone wants to touch a baby it's great luck you know so straight to the CEO and the chairman and and uh, had a wonderful personal relationship so we managed to get both these companies to build under our brand which just wasn't generally done in those sorts of firms so. We had the Chinese talking to the Germans, which wasn't easy, but we ended up developing this brand called Zen, which was perfect for a renewable energy business, and branding's a whole topic on its own, but you know, had those great Eastern connotations of wisdom, enlightenment, and new way of life, everything we wanted from a renewable brand, and we'd coined this industry term called home energy, which wasn't out there before then. So we built what was a Zen home energy system through collaboration with our suppliers, to build the components, match the components, brand the components, and really helped us bring the product into the country. Great terms that we worked with them on and developed and, um, and delivered this product to the market. But it's something we couldn't have done without strong collaboration with suppliers. So suppliers, absolutely key to any successful business. I, I couldn't agree more. And I urge anyone that is listening to really can think about, as a nugget to take away from today, think about their supplier relationships. And presenting to your suppliers, being able to actually, so you don't think of presentations just in raising money and pitching for money. You've got to be able to get up and talk and present your company to suppliers, to your own employees, to your customers, to your financiers, so you know, everyone. I love the story you're talking about branding a whole new industry, really, or the home energy sector. As you say, that we could do a whole other podcast on that, but that is innovative thinking. Just going back to this collaboration, suppliers. So that really, that collaboration of your suppliers, uh, sort of after hearing your story, I can see a really common thread there which took you through to, you know, solar batteries and now your Zen is in the retail mm. energy space. Mm. Just summarise for me, the collaboration amongst your suppliers, that was a real trigger, wasn't it? Mm. It was a really important part of growing our business. In fact, it, you know, the suppliers were a really integral part of the business all the way through. But it got to a point when, as I said before, in 2015 when Roscano joined the company, and after we'd installed about probably 40,000 solar systems at that time, and we were installing systems that had a 20 to 25-year life, you can't just keep installing systems. At, one, you know, at some point, you're going to start running out of customers, although, mind you, batteries have now come in and it's going through a whole new cycle. But we really wanted to evolve to become an energy 
generator and retailer on a large scale and really be the first clean energy utility in the country. We have to transition our energy sector for emissions sake, uh, but also renewable energy is now just the cheapest form of energy. So, you know, in a country like Australia, where we have the best solar and wind resource in the world, we are just crazy not to be transitioning our, our energy sector. So it was important to us personally and part of the values of the company to enable that change to happen. But in the earlier days of that progress, we worked collaboratively with who we thought potentially was going to be a great partner in helping us achieve that. So and one of the things that happened in 2017 was the GFG Alliance, which is Sanjeev Gupta's group, came into Australia and took over the steelworks in Wyala. And as they were negotiating with the um, administrators for the steelworks to buy the steelworks, they were also in parallel conversations with us to replicate a model they had in the UK where they could have direct supply of large-scale renewable energy directly into the steelworks, so low-cost solar energy primarily. At the time, our aspiration was to become this first large-scale clean energy utility in Australia, but for both of us, we had a common interest in having access to a large-scale energy source. So by collaborating and pooling our resources together to build what was going to be the Coltana solar farm in Wyala, which at the time was going to be the largest solar farm in Australia, and the Playford battery in Port Augusta, which was going to be equivalent in size or even a bit bigger than the, the Tesla battery in Jamestown. So for us, we, we actually merged the companies together. Some may remember in 2017 when we did that. And as I said, the aim was to have access to this large pool of energy even though we, as companies internally we had different aspirations as to what we wanted to achieve. Through the course of events and, and what is public knowledge now, GFG have had some difficulties in the market and never got to, I guess, progress the development of those projects, which we desperately needed. So we, at the time, had to go off and engage and contract large, other large-scale solar farms and wind farms around the country to form our pool of energy, which ended up for us being a much more flexible model. So by early 2020, we actually decided we need to demerger, which is really interesting because you hear companies merge all the time, but you rarely hear of a demerger when things don't go to plan. And things for us didn't go to plan, but you know, entrepreneurs find a way. And uh, our board in early 2020 said we need to progress with a demerger. We need to get on with our business plan. And getting divorced is always much more difficult than getting married. So it took us took us the best part of 2020 to negotiate that. But we we ended it at the end of 2020, and uh, and now Zen's on a on a rapid rise to become just that. So uh, we always talk about collaboration, but yes, as you highlight there, there was a a demerger. Um, and I'm sure there was some learnings from that I'm, I'm going to pick your brains on. I just want to pick up on a few points that you said because you had, I, I think going back to the, the collaboration where you looked at the synergies between the GFG and Zen, you had a common interest in energy, you said, mm. but different aspirations um, mm. between the companies. So can you just touch on that? And we know what demerger is, but what, what did that look like? What were some of the, the meaty challenges that came with demerger? Oh, look, there's there's some things I can't say publicly, but look, sure. it was a it was a difficult time for GFG and ne- trying to negotiate a demerger in what is a difficult time just adds to the complexity of the negotiations. But what we were proposing was a fairly clean split. They take the projects, which is what was of interest to them. We took the retailing business, which was of interest to us, and it was pretty much a fifty fifty clean split. But it just took a long time to 
get everyone on the same page and agree. You know, it's just getting divorced is messier than getting married. <laughs> Pretty much it comes down to that. And it led to what you indicated to a Zen taking the retail side of the, the organisation, the yeah. business. You mentioned earlier that you were already contracting new wind and solar providers. Yeah, yeah. So, so we basically th- just expanded on that model and kept going and now they're contracting very large solar and wind projects all around the country and actually now going full cycle and looking at starting to develop our own projects again. So it kind of pushed you down that pathway, yeah, absolutely, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It was actually, it was a very pinnacle time, I think, in the company's development. But yeah, as you said, you know, things don't always go to plan. That was a merger for the for what was supposed, supposed to give us a big advantage in the market at the time. Didn't happen, so we had to find an alternative pathway, which entrepreneurs have to do, pivot, and that ended up being the more flexible, better model, and now the company's progressed rapidly down that path. And But as I said, going almost full circle now and looking at developing its own projects again. You've written a book, The Essential Entrepreneur. I just want to touch on one of the 18 chapters, which is about the business starting up, a startup business plan. Mm. You mentioned earlier you established a brand, new name, new market position, a, a new yeah. sector. I often want to just share with those listening, uh, for those of them, those people that are looking for the future of their business, what might be a good few tips for them around some questions they should be asking themselves about the future of their business, around strategy, yeah. essentially? Okay, there's so much in that. <laughs> we need <laughs> there, another there's, podcast. There's, there's 18 chapters in this book <laughs> yeah. and every chapter is a, is a, is a, you know, a, a challenge in setting up starting, scaling, exiting a business. But the first question founders must be asking themselves is, have I got a customer that's willing to pay the price for this product or service? And that so often gets missed. So for the last 18 months, I did an 18-month contract with the University of South Australia as their entrepreneur in residence and worked with hundreds of startup companies, as well as the companies in the entrepreneurs' organisation, as well as my own companies. But the number of companies I have seen that have come to me after they've spent tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars developing products that they just don't have a customer for because they simply haven't gone out to the market and tested their product. And uh, that is that is such a crying shame because the, the damage financially that does to some people, particularly younger people who, you know, whether it's their own money or even worse if it's someone else's money, um, they just can't get back on their feet again. So as I say in one of the early parts of my book, building a business can give you all the flexibility and the great rewards and, and you know change your life significantly, but it can also take all that away from you as well if you don't get it right. And the reason I wrote the book is, is because I believe everyone should have the opportunity to start a company and change their lives, and it's the fastest, quickest way to actually change a person's life circumstances. And the number of people I've dealt with that have come from difficult, remarkable, remarkably difficult backgrounds that have built incredible companies, and it's not defined by education. Education, quite often it's those that are not bound by the rules of education that make the best entrepreneurs because they just they just see things differently. Um, but there's fundamentals that have to be in place. Validation of a business plan is one, so making sure the customer's there, testing it in sort of small groups of people, sometimes starting with family, then expanding to people within the industry that you want to provide and testing that out. But then there's planning. You know, once you've got past the fact that there is a opportunity in the market, then you've got to sit down. And I remember doing this with Zen, with sitting down with my accountant for hours and hours and hours on end, just going over and over the business model. 
how many of these systems do I have to sell? At what margin? What are my overheads? You know, what profit am I going to make if I do this? What's the what's the best case scenario? The the middle case scenario, the just breaking even scenario, and what's the failing scenario? <laughs> and, and how do I get out of this if things go wrong? And how do I fund it? You know, when you're starting up a business, how do you fund it? Where's that money going to come from? And the thing I really push founding entrepreneurs on is how can you make this as close to cash positive or cash positive as possible? Because when you're cash negative, which means you're getting money in after you've spent it, the bigger that gap, if you're growing a business, the faster you grow the business, basically the more money it consumes. So they've got to finance it. But if they can get the money in before they spend it, like with Zen, we were in a hot market. Everyone loved and fell in love with the ability to be energy independent. So the demand for our product in the early days was just phenomenal. So I was able to charge virtually 100% down payment, which funded our supply chain. So we were cash positive. We were getting money before we spent it. So the faster we grew, the more money we made. But if you're the other way around and cash negative, the faster you grow, the more money you basically need to fund the business. And then that's got to come from somewhere. So how do you do that? You know, from, through friends or family or through you know the three Fs, they call it. Uh, friends, family, and fools, um, or do you go to uh, you know, angel investors or um, you know, banks, or yeah, you just have to do that whole basic business plan. And just um, share one more tip from the book. I'm going to talk about um, the book a bit more in just a minute. Ironically, every podcast I ask for a book tip. Yep. What, what, what are you reading right <laughs> now, and what do you recommend? I'm pretty sure you're going to recommend. I would. This one, your book. Yep. <laughs> Um, the Essential Entrepreneur by Richard Turner. Just share another tip that, you know, one of your hot tips from the book. I know there's 18 fabulous chapters. Um, look, uh, another big one that a lot of people fail to understand, particularly as their businesses get bigger, is continually asking themselves, what business am I in? Because invariably, there's numerous businesses within a business. Um, and I'll go back to, say, my Regency Food Services business. We had a great supply chain, you know, purchasing team. So we were very good at purchasing product. We were very good at running a multi-temperature complex warehouse. Uh, we were very good at sales and marketing. What we realised was a big burden for my brother and I to manage was this fleet of probably a dozen multi-temperature, very expensive trucks that were doing our deliveries to all the hotels and restaurants and caterers and takeaways around town and um, you know drivers would be sick trucks need to be maintained trucks would break down they had to be cleaned it you know the drivers could only seem to do 25 odd deliveries a day that was seemed to be about their physical limit they could they could do but just managing drivers when they were sick and it, it was such a distraction to the core business that we were really good at where we could add value to that core business we weren't going to add value by wasting our days trying to fill drivers and fix up broken down trucks and things. So we thought, how do we outsource or potentially contract this? And we came up with an internal model where we spoke to our drivers and said, would you be interested in running your own vehicle and that becoming your own business? And we calculated the value, the, what, what would we need to pay them to be equivalent to their current salary plus the amount they would need to support and clean and maintain their trucks. And it worked out to be it was something like 4.7% of the value of the stock they took out, roughly. And drivers always look at you suspicious when you come to them with a business model like that. And they, anyway, you only got to get one or two 
that say, okay, oh, I think I could make that work and give it a go. And we got those one or two drivers. They took it on and suddenly overnight these guys became supermen. You know, they were doing 50 deliveries a day. They were earning double the money they ever earned, loved it. Our customers became their customers. So as they were doing deliveries, they were rotating stock. They were upselling the customers. They were doing every bit of service that they could possibly do. They were never sick They they or they had fill-ins. The trucks were always sparkling clean. It was just remarkable, the transition in the business just from that. So asking yourself, what business am I in and focusing on what on where you truly add value to that company is really important. Brilliant. I love that. That's a combination of strategy, collaboration, all my favourite sort of elements and in that And we got that money study. back into the company. So as I said, those trucks were 100 grand a piece. So, you know, when you bring a million dollars back into your company that... Yeah, win-win-win. Uh, win-win-win. You mentioned part of your upbringing, your values, part of the family business that you learnt to understand the value of money. What does that mean to you? Well, coming back to value, value of your company, value that investors potentially see in your company to the actual values that are in your company. You know, it's getting back to the mission and the vision and the journey that you're on and making it a journey that people complain to me about retaining staff and can't find good staff. And But if, you're, if you've got a journey like we set out with Zen and we had a clear mission, clear vision, people want to go on that journey and we just attract some amazing people to the company. So so there's there's values in terms of the passion, the why you exist, the why you get out of bed in the morning and why your people get out of bed in the morning and come and work for you. And then there's the dollar value within your company. Sometimes they're very much intertwined. There's another chapter in the book actually on product versus service when you look at value. Another probably key nugget for people understanding when you start a business, is it a service business? Is it a product business? If it's a service business, you only make money when you're doing the job and at the end of the day when you sell it, it's only worth about one times its profit because you are the business. If it's a products business, you can sell for five or ten times the profit you earn in the business and if you can productise a service, and there's some great examples in the book about doing that, you can transform the value of your business as well. Great insight. Just a fun fact, um, you mentioned uh, TNR, Thomas Foods, TNR Passport. My father designed and built abattoirs right. and, and that was one of his projects. Yes. So Murray yeah. Bridge, yeah. Right, fantastic. So nice uh, connection here. Great we were company. chatting earlier and Eddie, who's producing this podcast, did Zen Energy ads uh, earlier in his career. Voiced over so the we're ads, all, yes. we're all one big happy family here. <laughs> Lots of collaboration and connection here around the table. So thank you very much, Richard Turner. At SA Leaders, we are all about collaboration and community. If you're curious to know more about how we help businesses and leaders just like you scale and grow beyond their glass ceilings, then visit our website at www.saleaders.com.au and please don't forget to subscribe, share this podcast with your network and write a review if you really enjoyed it. This is our last podcast for 2022 calendar year. This has been an Audiosity production, so I thank Eddie very much for his time throughout the year. I'm Natasha Malani. I look forward to chatting with you next time. Happy connecting. <music>